Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Import Cinema Club. And today, you know, we're going to do it without a crew. Just me, by myself, along with Will. <laughs> we're going to do this podcast, slash make a movie. Because we're talking about the original one-man band, Robert Rodriguez. That's right, this podcast will be accomplished with a budget of merely $7,000. Plus $200,000 in post-production. But we don't talk about that part. So Robert Rodriguez... I'm sure many people listening to the podcast, everybody listening to the podcast will know who Robert Rodriguez is. He was one of those early 90s Sundance guys. He was best friends with Quentin Tarantino. He burst onto the scene with his film El Mariachi, which cost a mere $7,000, supposedly. Although, like you said, it had hundreds of thousands of post-production put into it. And he had a story behind the making of the film. The fact that he went into medical testing to raise the money to pay for the picture. That he didn't think it had that big of a future. He just wanted to do it as a test, but boom, it wins an audience award at Sundance, and it's the stratosphere from there. He is a studio filmmaker. His next picture is Desperado, and eventually, like now, I don't even know if he has fans anymore, does he? Well, that's the reason why I really wanted to do this episode, because... This man has many hits to his name, including Spy Kids, most notably. He has this two-pronged career, it seems, where he makes violent, I'm not even sure I want to call them exploitation movies, but violent uh, postmodern comedy thrillers on the one hand, and then very uh, silly and juvenile children's films on the other hand, like Kevin Smith. He's a Sundance guy who was able to cultivate his own ecosystem. Uh, I mean, Kevin Smith did it by nourishing his fan base online, whereas Robert Rodriguez did it by building his own studio, building his own American zoetrope in Austin, Texas, where he makes these movies basically without leaving home, making them with his family, doing much of them himself, you know, writing, shooting, editing, doing the special effects himself, and that all that sounds very cool. Oh, he's living the dream. I wish I had that. And yet, man, over the last 10 or 15 years, it really seems like his craft has devolved. What happened? With the possible exception of Alita Battle Angel, which is very popular in some circles and also is as much the vision of James Cameron, the producer. Yeah, like James Cameron's a real puppet master on that set. But before that, Rodriguez was pumping out all these movies that you know, look like movies that were made at his home. Oh, yeah. In his garage, pretty much. Which, you know what? I don't want to get right to those movies yet. But what's frustrating about those films is like, I don't care if you shoot it in your garage. There's ways to go about it. And it's not the ways that he does it. But let's go all the way to the beginning. Talk about El Mariachi. This is the film that was his big breakout hit made for $7,000. The diary that he wrote while making the film that he published became... Uh, something that you would find on the crate at your friend's college apartment who's taking TV broadcasting <laughs> around all the other like uh, weed and cigarette butts because everybody wanted to be Robert Rodriguez. And what I find interesting is there wasn't really that many other Robert Rodriguez's. Uh, how so? In like, the sense that there weren't any people that wanted to make that kind of genre entertainment that he did, did it for a really low budget, made a splash, and then moved on to bigger things. Like there were indie filmmakers that did little things and then that got big projects but none of them had the cult of personality the story or even the movie that people liked as much as el mariachi the robert rodriguez film. well also i think most of them didn't really have the vision and the the 
the context, the cultural context that would produce a movie like El Mariachi, because, you know, it's a very unusual thing. It's a very attention grabbing thing. This low budget Mexican thriller that's set in Mexico and has all the texture of a Mexican production with a lot of, I assume, amateur Mexican actors, you know, non-actors. Oh, yeah. Obviously heavily influenced by you know, I want to say John Woo, probably. I want to say Sam Raimi. Mm-hmm. John Carpenter. Uh, the weapon that the El Mariachi has is the machine gun that Snake Plissken has in Escape from New York. I love the story that Robert Rodriguez had about the making of this movie is that he saw all of these cheap Mexican movies that he could rent, like, uh, at his local video store where he lived, I believe in Austin, Texas at that time. And he said, OK, I want to start making movies. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make three low budget Mexican movies. I'm going to sell them to these Mexican video distributors. And then I will take all the best parts of those three, cut them together and then bring them to Hollywood to get like an agent. That was his plan. That was like part one of El Mariachi. Watching El Mariachi this week, I was putting myself in the headspace of watching this movie in 1992 at Sundance because a lot of it is still novel. A lot of it doesn't seem very novel anymore because the influences that he's drawing from are now, their influence is so prevalent now. And I mean, probably the influence of Rodriguez himself, as well as Tarantino, is very prevalent in genre filmmaking. So I can see a lot of the energy in the film, although it doesn't feel quite as much of a breath of fresh air as it did at the time. I mean, the way that Rodriguez made the movie was the way that you're not supposed to make films. Like, he shot it all handheld, wide-angle lenses. He jumped on the back of a wheelchair to get, like, dolly shots. He shot it, you know, whenever people had time, he made his own squibs. Like, it was all handmade and that kind of rough feel that you got. Like, the fact that it, the film is hyperkinetically edited because the mag that he had for the cellular could only hold so many seconds of film. <laughs> like, that's why it's edited so rapid fire. All of this stuff together, I think that when people saw it, especially at Sundance, which, let's be honest, they almost never have any good movies or any exciting movies. Well, Sundance before this was a different thing than what it became. Before Rodriguez and Tarantino, Sundance, I think it was regarded maybe it is regarded again now, but it was regarded at the time as a very kind of like soft granola type film festival. Yeah, it was supposed to be the movies that, you know, you can't get in multiplexes. And since Tarantino, it's still kind of soft and granola, but it's a different kind of soft and granola. It's like Fox Searchlight movies, movies with fucking, I don't know. Andy Samberg. Yeah, Andy Samberg or Steve Carell or someone like that. And I can imagine in that context, this movie, as well as Reservoir Dogs, feeling like an atomic blast there. I'll just briefly say that the plot involves a character named El Mariachi, who is in a small Mexican town, and uh, he's a troubadour. He's got a guitar that he carries in a big case, but uh uh-oh, there's a local drug kingpin who is looking for a killer who has wronged him, who carries his guns in a guitar case. The drug lord mistakes El Mariachi for the killer. And the movie is told exhaustingly with all of this, as you said, handheld camera work, all of these uh, swooping, whooping, uh, evil dead type uh, pans and zooms. And you can tell when Rodriguez was like, this is the... 
you know, the shot I'm going to put on my demo reel. And when he's like, eh, you know, I just need like an 80 minute movie. So I'm going to put this scene here. I mean, the plot of like mistaken identities and the assassins are after the El Mariachi because they think he's the uh, guy with the guitars in his gun case. Seems like it'll be a like a real like um, white knuckle thriller. And like the El Mariachi just kind of hangs out in a hotel for most of the movie, <laughs> continually going back to the location where the people know who he is and will come after them if they see him. I didn't find the movie very ingratiating watching it this week. I found myself outside of it. I could I I think when I saw this movie as a teenager, I found it cooler than I do now. And uh, one problem that I have with it, I I mean I think the movie is very energetic compared to a lot of the later Rodriguez movies, but it feels like a movie that's in quotation marks. I think I feel Rodriguez's hand very heavily. There's something that seems even a little bit halfway ironic about some of it. I don't know, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong to say that, but the style is so heavy and aggressive that I found the movie hard to get into. Well, I would make the argument that the style is like that because Rodriguez always meant the film to be like a calling card for himself. Not necessarily the actors or creating a believable world, but that it's intense enough and in your face enough that like when you saw the trailer for El Mariachi, you're like, what the hell is this? I want to see this. Like that was his main goal with the motion picture. And when you know that it was never really meant to go beyond the uh, Mexican video market, like that was his main goal. He came to a bunch of distributors early on and said, hey, would you like to distribute my film? And they turned him down. I mean, I do think it's like a good movie and, and a cool and nifty movie. I do think it's a bit of a problem, too, that the actors aren't very good. No, they're all dubbed, too, because uh, they didn't have sync sound when they shot it. And I think they redubbed it after uh, it got picked up for distribution in North America. And Rodriguez said, I mean, he says it in his diary that like, you know, the novelty value of this movie as well is that it was subtitled when it screened at Sundance and a lot of the film festivals early on. And that he felt that there was a novelty value there for people that they thought like, oh, this is more important because it's not in English. And, you know, uh, he's right. <laughs> I think people probably gave it more cultural weight because of that fact. Well, he certainly didn't go on to become an art house filmmaker, did he? No. Well, he didn't want to be an art house filmmaker. I mean, his follow up to um, El Mariachi Desperado is just essentially the same movie, but like blown up like Evil Dead 2, the Evil Dead. Yeah. And it's a good movie. It's very energetic and cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. Super fun. I think it's much better than El Mariachi. Uh, Antonio Banderas, he's such a ham. He's one of those actors who's so handsome, he's allowed to be a ham and he's still cool. And actually, that's really what separates Desperado from El Mariachi. And and it's unfair to compare the two because one of them is like a real movie with a real budget and the other one is an exercise. I, I mean, Desperado has action scenes. El Mariachi has like one chase sequence pretty much. So after that, of course, like Rodriguez is though part of even though he's not an art house filmmaker he's part of that sundance crew and is able to make four rooms with tarantino and the other two sundance people his, se- his segment in four rooms is the most fun out of all of them definitely by a, by a mile i would say did we do an episode early on in our patreon run of four rooms i feel like we did didn't we i think we probably did because i remember watching it with you yes we did <laughs> and didn't we have a joke that like Back then, we, we weren't on Letterboxd. We just post movies on our Facebook of what we've watched. And you're like, I'm just going to post like four rooms every day as a movie that I watch. <laughs> <laughs> and from there, he became kind of the Miramax guy. Like he did The Faculty, a part of that like 90s horror teen wave thing. And none of his films were like massive hits, but they had their fans. He had kind of like his cult of filmmakers like Kevin Smith did. And he never really made like an outright bad movie. 
that like sunk him or like sold out in a way, I guess. What do you think of From Dusk Till Dawn? I like From Dusk Till Dawn a lot. I think it's incredibly flawed. Uh, I would say mostly because of Quentin Tarantino's script and friggin' Quentin Tarantino being one of the main stars in it. Very bad, yeah. But uh, great cast though. You got Fred Williamson in there. You got John Saxon briefly. John Hawks. Juliette Lewis, Harvey Keitel. Quentin Tarantino on the commentary points out an issue with the film that they almost did reshoots of, which is it's missing an action scene before they get to the bar. And Quentin Tarantino wrote a big like set piece where the cops arrive at the hotel they're staying at and there's a big shootout when they escape. I think that would have helped the pace a little bit more. But also, my partner Emily pointed this out when we watched it years ago. The ending is like it wants to be Sam Raimi-ish and it can't really pull it off. She's like, why are all the vampires just standing around in a circle around everybody? And I'm like, I never noticed that before. <laughs> yeah, Like it's yeah. not as energetic as it felt like when I was a teenager. But Rodriguez's career took a new direction and really was blasted into the stratosphere for a little while by Spy Kids and its sequels in the early 2000s, as well as I think by Sin City from around 2005, which would have been kind of the height of his bankability, as well as his reputation as an innovator. Everybody loved Sin City when it came out. They were like, whoa, this is so cool. Look at all these stars on the screen at one time. Well, also the fact that it was an attempt at a direct translation of a comic book from the page to the screen to the point that he actually gave Frank Miller a co-directing credit. Rodriguez quit the DGA because they wouldn't let Frank Miller have a co-directing credit. If you want to see how things have changed, compare the critical and popular reception to that movie to that of its sequel, A Dame to Kill For, which came out, you know, almost a decade later. Well, I will point out, A Dame to Kill For is incredibly dull. Nothing happens in it. It's almost like wild that the same person who made Sin City, which I got to point out, is like misogynistic. It's like shock for shock's sake. That's Frank Miller's original material. But at least stuff is happening and there's an attempt at it being exciting. But a dame to kill for. You're looking at Evergreen naked the entire time and you're like, oh my God, stop showing me her breasts. It's so boring. I don't know. I think I would find a way to survive. Uh, Trust me. Like, it's almost a running gag that everyone who sees a dame to kill for is like, ugh. No more of her breasts. (laughs) So dull. (laughs) Uh, But so after Sin City, he made The Adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl 3D in 2005. Now, I have a uh, hypothesis that I think 3D killed a lot of Robert Rodriguez's style. What makes you say that? Because I remember listening to the commentary on Spy Kids 3D when it came out. Yes, I was enough of a fanboy that I got it. Listen to the commentary track. (laughs) And he pointed out that, you know, there's rules in 3D that if you do certain things like camera moves that they do not translate to the screen and he tried to be very rigorous with those rules and essentially what that demands of your film is that the camera is locked down most of the time for the 3D to work as well as it can and I think that when he started using that style especially in the adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl that just kind of baked into his regular filmmaking and because of that it you know, the result of later films are so lifeless. But we watched The Adventures of Sharkboy and Lava Girl, so we should talk about it a little bit. I'll preface our discussion of this movie by saying that I saw Spy Kids 3D theatrically, and uh, I was very excited for it, actually, because it was a 3D movie, which if you can believe it, in the year 2003 was a novelty. Oh, a huge gimmick. You got those glasses? I saw it theatrically as well. I think I saw it for my birthday, actually. Looking through those glasses was like looking at a movie through mud. Uh, It was the red and blue, which was also like something I was kind of excited for because it wasn't slick IMAX 3D. It was shitty, shoddy, uh, you know, like 
3D glasses you'd get in the back of a comic book. Yeah, when you crack open your Disney adventure and you can read the Roger Rabbit comic in 3D. Yeah, exactly. Which is also, I think, part of the appeal of Rodriguez's family movies, the fact that they're a little bit junky. I remember seeing shorts when it came out. I saw it as a professional critic, actually. I I didn't go to a matinee. (laughs) As a professional critic. I didn't go to a matinee surrounded by children, um, um, just of my own volition. I saw shorts as a critic, but I remember finding shorts like very mildly fun, just on the level of, you know, it's just a junky, shitty movie for children that uh, meets children at a certain level that children sometimes like to be mad at. I mean, I have two big issues with his kids' film, It's like a movie that was made by a kid. Yes. (laughs) I don't like that because it's lame most of the time. And the second one is like, I think that because he's making movies for kids, he doesn't really bother in like setup or set pieces or paying stuff off. It's mostly just gross out humor or a crazy idea presented on screen without an execution or a follow through that would actually make it enjoyable. Yeah. And sometimes I like the gross out humor in his kids movies. I mean, it's fine. I yeah. like the fact that the kids get to be little bastards. I think he's somebody who's very much in touch with certain feelings and certain tastes that children have that most adults lose touch with. I know that Shark Boy and Lava Girl was allegedly inspired by an idea that his own child had. Racer Rodriguez. You know, for about 20 minutes, I was kind of into Shark Boy and Lava Girl, believe it or not. For all the reasons I've just said, as well as the fact that it looks so junky, it looks oh, yeah. like... I love the look. The special effects are 10 years behind where they should be. It's like a Windows 95 screensaver yeah it's like reboot or something like that no 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 it's i think they were called short circuits those um like uh bumpers on ytv of like the bird flying through like a cg space i definitely felt like i was in mr parnassus's imaginarium at times not just for the junkiness of the special effects but also for the arbitrariness of the film and the sensory overload of the film which eventually weighs it down the fact that there's Ugh, so boring yeah, there's, there's nothing to grasp on to it's just like eating cake in fact it's not like eating cake it's like eating the ingredients for cake for for 150 minutes or however long this thing is the lead of this film is death this like <laughs> boring white kid that you know he got cast because the studio is like you gotta have a white kid as your lead like you can't have shark boy because you know he's not white so you gotta have the white you know a pov character who's in control of everything and he's the one dreaming this i liked the villainous george lopez whose face appears like horrifying like on a tv screen on a giant robot type thing i like that i think it has like a lot of kind of cool visual ideas in it i think that maybe if you were eight years old and you saw it in a theater, this would be very cool and fun. When you recently said, you know, how did I watch those black and white Batman movies when I was a kid? What did I get out of them? And it's like, well, Batman was in it. So like, you can understand Sharkboy and Lava Girl. Kids are like, there's a shark in it. And it's like, the shark doesn't do anything. It's just kind of there. But they're just happy to see it. A turning point in Rodriguez's uh, reputational slash professional fortunes was probably slash personal fortunes as yes, well uh, was probably Grindhouse and his segment Planet Terror because that I mean that movie the release of that movie really was his peak as as a force like this is Miramax putting the full weight of its promotional apparatus not Miramax the Weinstein company putting its full weight behind uh, Tarantino and Rodriguez as brand names to sell a concept that 
nobody aside from cinephiles understood, which is like a grindhouse double feature. They did not do a good job advertising it either, because I remember I saw this film probably two or three times in theaters and people always, always got up to leave after the first movie. His segment, Planet Terror, you know, I haven't seen it since I saw it in a theater that fateful day in 2007. Uh, It's a little bit um you know tiresome i think i liked it i i really liked it i thought it was i mean it's tiresome after oh my god a decade of grindhouse ripoffs that have come out <laughs> just endless trying to rip this off i i think that digital video is like uh, robert rodriguez's achilles heel like his digital films are so goddamn ugly <laughs> Like, so bad. Like, if Grindhouse had been shot on, like, Super 16 millimeter, I think it would have worked much, much better. But it isn't. It's shot on digital video, made to look like film, and it looks like that. I think it's fun, though. It moves fast. It's really gross in a kind of fun way. It overstays its welcome. But it's the kind of film that I would expect the guy that made Desperado to make for all good and bad. Yeah, I mean, I didn't love the Tarantino segment either. No, I don't like the Tarantino one. Tarantino, fucking make your movie 85 minutes. Yeah, uh, seriously. But Grindhouse uh, had further implications for Rodriguez's career because, as everyone knows, it had fake trailers in the middle of it. And one of those fake trailers was for a mexploitation film called Machete, featuring Featuring Danny Trejo as a knife-wielding killer. He and Quentin Tarantino, they love to, like, shoot their mouth off and be like, Oh, man, we're going to do Grindhouse 2. I'm going to shoot a, a Mandarin martial arts film. Tarantino said this. And it's like, mm-hmm, okay, I'll believe it when I see it. And Rodriguez said, I'm just going to go in the big studio that I have, the garage, and I'm going to shoot Machete. And I was like, oh, yeah, do it, man. Nothing's stopping you. And then he did it. And then I saw the movie, and I'm like, oh, no, this is bad. One of the problems that I have with all of Rodriguez's kind of exploitation films, at least since Grindhouse, is that they don't they don't really commit to the bit enough, I think. Oh, yeah. They're always, like, winking or putting bumpers to make sure that, like, if you don't really get it, we'll let you know how you're supposed to get it. So Machete is a film that is full of elements that you're supposed to kind of, like, pump your fist at and go, that's really awesome. You know, you're supposed to be, like, backslapping your buddies in that opening scene when Machete, like, cuts off the heads of all these guys and then you know steven seagal comes in as the villain and you're supposed to laugh at that and then later on Lindsay lohan shows up and in the big final action scene at the end Lindsay lohan is dressed as a nun and i guess that's supposed to be delightful because she's Lindsay lohan it's not delightful i mean i think the cast in this movie is pretty good from top to bottom yeah but the problem is that rodriguez Like, he wants to have a big all-star cast to kind of buffer the film. The film's called Machete. It should be about Machete the entire time. Well, yeah, and the all-star cast is mostly cast just, I think, for the stunt of it. I mean, exactly. having Seagal as the villain and then having Robert De Niro as the uh, racist senator and then having, like, you know, Cheech Marin as the priest. These are all, like, joke castings. I actually think all three of them are pretty good in the movie, even Seagal. I think they are but they don't have anything to do that's the big problem with the film like at this point in rodriguez's career i almost feel like the puzzle of putting a movie like this together is more interesting to him than actually 
executing anything that is fun. Like the idea of like, oh, can you believe I got Don Johnson, Robert De Niro? Uh, I'm trying to think of some other people that are in the movie. Uh, Lindsay Lohan. And they're all together in this one film. Isn't it crazy that they came together? And you're like, oh yeah, this sounds great. What are they going to do? He's like, well, Lindsay Lohan's dressed as a nun. I was like, okay, well, what does she do as a nun? Well, isn't that enough? Like just the idea of it? And it's like, no, no, you have to make a movie around those things. And he doesn't. Yeah, uh, the plot is simultaneously so busy and yet also uneventful. A lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. And it's too bad because Danny Trejo is such an incredible screen presence. And imagine if this actually was an exploitation movie. Imagine if it wasn't like a winking pomo jokey thing with a bunch of stunt casting imagine if it was actually like a really violent down and dirty movie starring danny trejo when he's like killing people in a way that's it's not cgi blood splattering everywhere yeah like rolling thunder or something like that starring danny trejo honestly like half the cast could still be in it like you could still have don johnson in it. you could still have fucking steven seagal in it even and it could still be good and uh actually you know what it would be like it would be like dragged across concrete or something like that it could still have the half-hearted political message that the movie has about xenophobia against mexicans it could still have that and be a really down and dirty tough violent exploitation movie and it's too bad it isn't yeah i don't know why it isn't i'm curious if rodriguez like this was a dimension film was there certain expectations that were uh, imposed on him is this just the stuff that he likes he likes hanging out with these people and just not really have them do anything i know that when he made once upon a time in mexico like he sh- shot johnny depp out in like a couple of days and depp was shocked that he did it that fast and it's like yeah i know i can tell in the movie you know all these pieces are so separate from each other one of the less appealing qualities of grindhouse i think is you get the sense that neither tarantino nor rodriguez actually wanted to rise to the challenge of making a real grindhouse movie no they want to make something that's better than those grindhouse movies yeah they both think they're kind of above it it would be so much more fun to see them actually really do something at the budget level of a grindhouse movie that forces them to abandon certain of their authorial ticks Mm -hmm. and machete is a problem too because it's also done in a kind of grindhouse style or what he thinks is a grindhouse style the opening scene even though it's shot digital the opening scene has all of those scratches on the screen to make it look like it's i hate it so much (laughs) yeah make it look like it's a battered film print but it's it's the whole thing's a joke the whole thing's not serious because you know he's not actually going to make an exploitation film like the movie cost i think 30 million dollars he could have shot the film on super 16 that way (laughs) or even on 35 millimeter and then just run like uh, a print across the ground and then he would have gotten all those scratches it would have been so much better and yeah it's jokey but what is the joke exactly what's what's the joke of having all of these can't you believe that robert de niro is in a film called machete that's the joke yeah or, or that Lindsay lohan is in a movie with robert de niro as opposed to going like okay Let's take Danny Trejo, who is an imposing figure. Let's build an entire movie around him that can be bloody. It can be gory. There can be jokes in it. But let's treat it with seriousness and try to, like, deliver on the concept. And I don't think Rodriguez at this point in his career can do that anymore well the movies that he's made since then with the very very arguable exception of alita battle angel which has its fans and shows evidence of a growth in some direction or other the movies he's made since then have not really been winners there was the machete sequel which was received very poorly don't forget spy kids four all the time in the world Yeah, i think there was like maybe one or two other like kid type movies one of them just came to netflix called we can be heroes and it looks exactly 
exactly like Sharkboy and Lavagirl, basically. Like, he has not changed it up at all. And, you know, the man is following his muse. He can, within, you know, he's built this studio around him. So within certain financial limits he can kind of do whatever he wants and well he started his own tv station that we don't get in canada called the l ray network and he does a lot of cool stuff on that including like he had his own wrestling show as well so maybe that kind of took his interest away from making the movies and that's where all his attention has gone to but when i was a fan of him as a teenager like the early 2000s like i just wish he could get his own studio that he could make like cheap action movies that could go direct to vd dvd or you know vod now and i guess it just doesn't interest him anymore like he doesn't want to do that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. yeah i guess so in 2019 he made a movie for seven thousand dollars again to prove that he could called red 11 hasn't come out yet but i saw a news blast from a few weeks ago that is coming directly to tubi in march i believe i probably won't watch it (laughs) i mean so he's he made an effort there of like look i can still do it i'm still relevant hello fellow kids ah man i wish the the robert rodriguez that made desperado would come back was he a big influence to you as a filmmaker when you were making say teddy bomb yes that like he could do that and do it for so little money and have a feature film that people could watch and then could lead to bigger things was definitely an inspiration. But after I made Teddy Bob and then nobody cared, I was like, oh, yeah, Robert Rodriguez, he's like a one of a kind kind of guy. That's not going to happen with me. So I need to shift my expectations to, uh, you know, a different strata, basically. Well, uh, you got a lot of podcast fans now, so more people care than ever. Yeah, they don't buy the new movies, though. They like to buy the older films. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, I'll get to the new film later on. Well, you know, eventually in 15 years, Teddy Bomb will be picked up by Intervision. Yeah, that's right. One can only dream. And you know what? I can't say I've been following Robert Rodriguez's career like after I've been burned so many times over the last decade. (laughs) But if he made a movie and I saw a trailer and I'm like, ooh, this looks different, I would probably check it out. Like, I would hope that he's still got some of that in him. He has a new film called like Hypnotic starring Ben Affleck that's supposed to uh, come out uh, or in production at some point. So that sounds serious. That sounds different. I'd be interested in that. Well, hope springs eternal. (laughs) It does. So as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Pod podcast at gmail.com and our first letter is from robert carroll and it goes hey justin and will thanks for your podcast and gold ninja video i just joined patreon and i'm excited to check out all the new to me podcast and i also really enjoyed watching strangler of the swamp a few days ago but Wizbar's career suggested an interesting podcast topic. Uh, Strangler of the Swamp, now sold out, unfortunately, on Gold Ninja Video, but that's a fun one. I'm glad I could put that out on Blu-ray. And by the way, just a little context for the listeners, Strangler of the Swamp was a very low-budget horror film that was made in the 40s that had some unexpected style in it, some cool German expressionist-influenced style, and it was directed by a German emigre named Frank Wizbar, uh, who made films uh, under the Nazis, actually, and then fled before the Second world war and made really low budget films in america uh, so the letter continues like Wizbar, douglas sir got started with ufa and when he came to the u.s one of the first movies was a poverty road joint starring front of the podcast john carity and that's right i'm talking hitler's madman did we talk about hitler's madman in an episode i feel like i watched i think we addressed it in the poverty row episode Poverty Row episode. that's right a letter continues it's got all the trademark cirque melodrama but paired with poverty row production values and pro-war propaganda or do a double feature with fritz lang's hangman also die another low budget Hollywood about the assassination of Heydrich from a script by Bertolt Brecht to truly explore auteur theory. How do Lang and Cirque handle the same subject matter with similar resources? We've never even pitched a Douglas Cirque episode, have we? No, and I think it's because I'm actually... 
he's a bit of a blind spot for me. Like I've seen all that heaven allows and I've maybe seen one or two others over the years, but he's not somebody, I mean, he seems kind of up my alley. Yeah. He was one of the guys that famously was like making films that were dismissed as women's pictures, but had so much depth to them that like film theorists jumped all over them and they made like Douglas Sirk their cause celeb. Yeah. I mean, he's on my list of people to engage with more because when I saw his movies, I was like 18, you know, I want to say it was like intro to film class. And I don't think I was at that point at the stage of being able to engage with them really but i think you know now I, i've heard so many good things about him over the years i, I mean it, it's it's shameful actually that i haven't engaged with him more his book cirque on cirque is like one of the famous of those like uh filmmakers on filmmakers books because he really dived into his filmography like nobody had really done before uh wait there's a little bit more to the letter oh and justin i wanted to add how much i loved impossible horror it's like a love letter to horror films and dramatizes the scary and draining nature of the creative process i've been recommending it to all my film nerd friends and i hope that you get to make another feature when we're no longer dealing with the pandemic teddy bomb is next on my watch list sincerely robbie carroll oh well thank you very much robbie hear that the the cult is growing and by the way justin <laughs> I, right. I just want to say that you know going to see te- uh, impossible horror at the toronto after dark film festival god that was such a great night you know big, big screen big cinema me uh scared out of my wits because i thought that the digital file had a bunch of errors in it but it worked it was fine i was very moved by the movie at the time i, I have to say because i could i could see i could see justin all over it you know you know, I could see your ideas and, and your fears and, and everything in that movie. It felt like the, the human embodiment of you. Actually, not, not the human embodiment, the film embodiment of you. Yeah, I'm the human embodiment of me. Yes. <laughs> so our next letter is from Jack Burnham, and it goes, Hello, Justin and Will. Uh, the compliment train continues. I'm just writing in to say I just finished reading Will's blog post, My Life as a Film Critic, and was struck by what a lovely piece of writing it was, and also how resonant I found it to be. I am also a person who may, in my adolescence, and maybe a little li- and maybe a little bit later than I'm willing to admit, thought of myself as perhaps a bit of a budding genius who would take the world by storm. And now I'm comfortable and much happier living with the facts that while not untalented, I'm not destined to be the dynamo I imagined myself to be once upon a time. I'm sure similar feelings stir in the hearts of most young people people who are seduced by the notion that their ideas about art reverberate throughout the world. The way this fruitful process of self-discovery was articulated in Will's piece was extremely well done to the degree that it was even rather touching. So he's talking about a piece that you recently posted on your blog, right? That's right. It was called My Life as a Film Critic, and it was talking about all my escapades contributing film criticism to the world, becoming the Gene Shalit of this generation. There is my official version of the birth of the Important Cinema Club podcast in there. Yeah, me going up to you and being like, hey, Will, you want to do a podcast? And you're like, okay, I kind of know you. Yeah, sure. Well, you see, my memory of it is that you pitched the podcast to me because we, uh, we, we you came to my house and we watched Cracking Up, the Jerry Lewis film. And and you were like, we should do a podcast that's like about all, all sorts of like, like the first episode should be Cracking Up up and king of comedy double feature and i'm i'm not sure why i why i said yes it seemed like a neat enough idea to kind of pass the time for a couple weeks i've said this before but i want to do a podcast with will because i think that he was a smart film guy that i knew <laughs> and he had seen all the smart movies that i loved watching but i didn't have anyone to talk about with and you know here we are but i think what you what you underestimated at the time was that i also like all the garbage yes you like. that's true is that our tastes aligned very closely to each other and that we both like hearing the sound of our own voices that's, yeah okay that's a big thing and and actually you know i cannot underestimate that in the birth of the important cinema club podcast it's like whatever insecurities i had about it were drastically outweighed by loving to hear myself talk <laughs> wait the letter continues here though the important
Modern Cinema Club was pretty much the first piece of online audio that I discovered that really felt like it was on a wavelength that I could get into, not least because the first episode was on Jerry Lewis, a figure who is rarely discussed and seemingly somewhat forgotten amongst people of my generation. I was born in 93. Seeing figures who have been my teenage obsessions like Jerry Lewis, Jean-Luc Godard, the Marx Brothers, Woody Allen, Marlon Brando, and Orson Welles, all being discussed in the same place in an unpretentious way that was also deeply considered, clearly arising from having lived with these figures as long as I had, this truly felt like finding an oasis in the desert at the time. Since then, the podcast had obviously gone from strength to strength. I am ashamed to say that I had never heard of Choi Hark, Roberta Finley, Sean Costello, Pearl Chang, or Andy Milligan before I heard your podcast, and there were many people I heard about who I'd never been motivated to check out, like Jackie Chan, the films of Ed Wood, Jess Franco, Wood, and quite a few others. Why such a long letter with so many lists of names? Well, I want it to be understood that I am not offering frivolous pay- praise when I say that this podcast has been as important to me as any of the critics mentioned earlier in this letter. Ooh, I skipped over that part. He mentioned R- Roger Ebert, Andrew Sarris, Jonathan Rosenbaum, Pauline Kael, David Thompson, Derek Malcolm, Barry Norman. It has enriched my thinking and has provoked me to broaden my tastes and has provided me a few laughs. All the ideas outlined in Will's blog posts, like not seeing good and bad cinema as a strict binary and not thinking of art and trash as mutually exclusive, all ideas have made the podcast so rich to me and brought my love and enthusiasm with cinema to greater heights than before. Will also wrote in his piece about developing a personal style. With these podcasts, with your particular preoccupations, conversational dynamics, and sense of humor, you have both achieved this, and it's a pleasure to hear you every week. So cheers to you both. Long may you run, as your fellow countrymen would say. Warm regards, Jean Robin. Or Robin. Well, thank you so much, Jean. That is such a touching email. I wish the people could see me now. I got tears in my eyes. I feel like freaking Mr. Holland. Seeing his opus. If somebody had taken me aside and was like, listen, you will have an impact on someone as much as like Jonathan Rosenbaum had on you in college, I would be like, well, that's impossible. No way. Oh, wow. No, it's it's just incredibly moving. And I think we really appreciate that. Yeah, we really appreciate it um, so much, especially everybody who listens to all these topics that like you don't know who these people are. So you're like, am I going to spend 30 minutes on this name that I don't recognize? And then you click on it and you listen to it. Like that is the greatest gift you can give us that you're willing to continue to go along with whatever topics that we pick. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And on that note, if you're a real fan, you should become a Patreon subscriber. <laughs> uh, listen, uh, it's, oh, uh, when you're listening to this, it's probably February 24th, and we are like 20 people short of 400. We're not going to do our marathon if we don't hit that number. What are some of the marathon topics that we might do? Uh, John Cleese movies. The American Pie Saga, The Last Days of Jackie Chan, DreamWorks Films, No Shreks Allowed, so B-movie, Shark Movie, all of those. It, by the way, you, you said John Cleese movies, and I just want to underline, we're talking about bad John Cleese oh, movies. bad John Cleese, which is what, like 98% of his output? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, American Pie, I mean, we're talking about, you know, uh, all the way up to American Reunion and one of the direct-to-videos. You know, it's kind of wild that we never really talked about that, like, gross-out wave of movies that came uh, in the wake of American Pie, because it was such like a prominent part, I feel, of our teenage years. Yeah, that was like the default comedy mode when we were teenagers. Like every comedy had to have that scene that pushed the envelope, you know, like the scene where Van Wilder's dog uh, comes on all the cookies and people eat the cookies, you know, that scene or the scene where Austin Powers drinks the shit. <laughs> exactly. And you know what? We won't talk about it unless you become a Patreon subscriber. Listen, if somebody gives us like an extra $100 a month, you know, we'll do it because that's technically 20 
20 extra people. So yeah. look, we're always making pitches to eccentric um, rich people out there that want to throw money our way. I'd love to start a media empire with you, Justin. Like, can we, you know, can we, I mean, we already have in a way, you know, but we, we have Blu-rays that we put out. I mean, but... it'd be nice if we could pay our rent with some money that we make. Yeah, that would be, that would be nice. Um, <laughs> I look at like some of the podcasts I listen to and I'm like, man, they make $20,000 a month. Yeah, I don't know. They got the secret sauce. What can I tell Listen, you? we're talking about The Simpsons today. That's actually the secret, is to talk about things that people Speaking like. Speaking of, you know, giving people what they want, this week on Patreon, we're doing Batman Mask of the Phantasm. That's right. The animated Batman film that many people would tell you is the best Batman and film. And will Will tell you that? Batman Superfan number one? How did he feel when he revisited it? Well, you can find out by going to patreon.com slash the important cinema clown, becoming a Patreon subscriber, and checking out that episode, or just giving us $100 a month. That works too. Or just one payment of $100 a month. So what are we doing next week, Will? Speaking of doing stuff that people know. I mean, to what extent do people know this topic? People know his work. I would say that he's probably one of the big cinematographers, if not the biggest. Like, what are the other ones? He's like, if you name cinematographers, you might name Gordon Willis. You might name Christopher Doyle. And then you might name this guy, Vilmos Zygmunt. And Vilmos Zygmunt is like right the sweet spot that me and Will love because he made a whole bunch of trash before he made good and then he ended his career with a whole bunch of trash oh but in the middle well i mean i'm not gonna i'm not gonna prioritize one era of his career over another but when he started early on he made a lot of films for ray dennis steckler like uh rat fink a boo boo and oh, man another guy that it's like how have we not done a ray dennis steckler episode yet madness Madness. It's sad. It's sad. We'll get to him eventually. Uh, actually, sorry. He didn't do Ratfink and Boo Boo, but he did uh, The Incredibly Strange Creatures who stopped living and became- Got mixed up or became a mixed up yeah, zombie. That, that's right. He did uh, films with Archal Jr. He did films with Al Adamson, I believe. Oh, he shot the beautiful Five Bloody Grave for Al Adamson, restored finally on that Al Adamson box set that Severin put out. And then finally, when he ascended- to the A-list, he was working with all of the great new Hollywood auteurs. He shot McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Uh, he shot Deliverance, uh, The Sugarland Express, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Heaven's Gate. He did uh, Brian De Palma films, like Dress to Kill. And then, you know, uh, later on, his career had its ups and downs. Uh, he did Assassins with Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a Richard Donner film. It was supposed to be a big production. He did, I mean, if we get to the, you know, nadir of his career... He did Jersey Girl for our man Kevin Smith. And I mean, that's not even the nadir of his career because he ended with the Mindy Project. But you know what? All big cinematographers eventually end up working in sitcom. Carl Freund, one of the big German cinematographers, he's the one who did the cinematography on the Lucille Ball show, um, pioneering the multicam setup. Well, we're definitely going to talk about all phases of his career, and we're going to try to define what his visual identity is as a stylist yep so that's gonna happen next week our episode on vilmos zygmunt and until then my name's justin i'm will sloan thanks for listening justin here interrupting briefly to thank some of our new patreon subscribers who include kyle davis robbie carroll patrick o'donnell ryan w Corey, morian joshua alex goyechi and todd kendrick thank you so much for becoming patreon subscribers we could not do it without you and just as a reminder 
the release of The Other Side of Gary Graver, the Gold Ninja video package that is dedicated to the cinematographer that worked with Orson Welles on The Other Side of the Wind and who was his creative collaborator for many, many years of his life, is now available at goldninjavideo.com. It is $15. It is a limited edition. And me and Will put everything that we have into this release in an attempt to make it the ultimate Gary Graver experience. The previous Gold Ninja Video disc, Unlucky Stars, which is Dennis Rule's homage to Hong Kong action cinema, is also available. And that's another great special edition, a film that had never been released on Blu-ray before. And I worked directly with the filmmaker, star, co uh, choreographer to put it all together so check those out goldninjavideo.com before they sell out and with that i now return you to your regular scheduled program well one of the things i've been doing to pass the time in quarantine is a couple friends and i started like a zoom movie club where we would where we're gonna watch like whatever kind of stuff that we've never got around to mostly kind of trashy stuff or, or, or just like curios. I guess we basically just been watching curios. So for example, we watched 50 shades of black alone in the dark, a dirty shame. We watched love and betrayal, the Mia Farrow story <laughs> as, as well as we, we watched only God forgives a week ago. And this week we watched undercover, which is a movie that I guarantee most of our listeners have not heard of. It is an erotic thriller from 1995 one of those like direct to video or direct to cable soft core movies, the, the sorts of stuff that you used to see on cable, like at 1am all the time that would have those, those soft core sex scenes with like big breast implants and saxophone music. You know what I'm talking Wait, about? Who, who picked this one? Actually, I picked it. It was technically my pick, but it was actually a collaborative effort because I couldn't think of one. And we were going over like directors who might, be fertile territory to explore and we hit upon gregory dark <gasps> gregory new wave hooker slash see no evil dark yeah and gregory dark is somebody who i don't think i had ever actually seen one of his movies <laughs> you hadn't i had like pitched him as a director for the show <laughs> like a couple years ago at the movie club uh someone was telling me that actually we sh- that i should pitch you on gregory dark um and i said that won't be a problem justin would be 100 percent in to do gregory dark i'm confident so i do think we should do it but i think the problem is that like he doesn't really have any great movies technically right yeah i mean maybe he would be a patreon subject but but there's definitely stuff to explore there because he he was a pornographer with his brother in the 80s and he was like one of the top porn directors and one of the nasty porn directors as well like in the in the context of the content of his movies well i remember once watching like a compilation of porn trailers and i saw the trailer for devil and miss jones 3 and I remember that trailer, like, kind of freaking me out. It had, like, weird 80s aesthetics, you know, all the hair, you know, weird colors, all, all the kind of, like, really taggy 80s style, just amped up to almost Dick Tracy levels of stylishness, um, but also just, like, really hard, aggressive sex. So, I don't know, his porn movies, he was apparently, like, quite a quite a unique and original stylist within the context of pornography, but I don't know if it's stuff that's really my cup of tea, to be honest. Uh but, you know, maybe something that's interesting to explore. And then, as you alluded to, he later directed the first WWE 
theatrical movie, which was See No Evil, starring Kane. But most importantly, he directed a bunch of music videos. He's a very successful music video director. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, what was the Britney Spears one that he did? Okay, wait a minute. I just looked it up. He did From the Bottom of My Broken Heart. That was his Britney Spears video, which, if you watch it, you know, could not be more different than Devil and Miss Jones 3. He did direct Graduation Friends Forever for Vitamin C. So every time that there was a graduation in my school, they would play that music video. There, Everybody's watching a Greg Gregory Dark production. But the Gregory Dark movie that we watched was from, I guess, his mid-period. It was, as I said, one of those softcore sex movies that play on cable called Undercover. And the plot is, you know, it's like Strip to Kill, if you've seen that. It's a police detective who, of course, is a beautiful and big-breasted woman, played by Alana Massey. She has to go undercover in a brothel as a prostitute, as a sex worker, to find a killer of sex workers. And of course, uh, wouldn't you believe it, she finds that going undercover and engaging with this work stirs unexpected feelings in her. She she finds herself falling down the rabbit hole of this profession. Alana Massey is Athena Massey. My apologies. She's pretty good in it. And the movie didn't quite have as much visual panache as I was expecting it to, to be honest. A lot of just very basic camera setups, very basic compositions, two people in a frame talking to each other. (laughs) Where's that Gregory Dark style? But as I was watching it, I texted you and I said, uh, you know, hear me out. Uh, 90s direct-to-video, direct-to-cable, softcore, erotic thrillers. Is this the poverty row of the 90s? And I said, yes, of course it is. (laughs) Because, you know, you and me, we're always looking for whatever the, the poverty row of a different context is. We're always trying to find, like... Those movies that were ground out on the fringes of Hollywood in the 1940s and were sold on the second half of a double bill and no critic ever took seriously, but occasionally an artist like Edgar G. Ulmer would emerge from them. And I would love to know, is there an Edgar G. Ulmer of 90s softcore cable erotica? I feel like somebody on Letterboxd could probably tell us, somebody that I follow, because seemingly people are just watching uh 90s erotica constantly shit are they (laughs) yeah i have on my uh watch list tons of them that like people that i follow gave really good reviews but i never go to them because i'm like oh man 90s erotica what a grind those usually are yeah so i would like to know if anybody knows what are the what are the great 90s dtv softcore erotica movies and i'm not talking about radley metzger i'm not talking about jess franco like i'm not talking about the old masters from the 60s and 70s i'm talking the 90s yeah people that came up in the 90s and they made films that they knew were going right to those video store shelves and as long as it was a man and a woman seemingly in a passionate embrace on the cover and the woman had very large breasts that's all that mattered was anybody behind the scenes making gold out of that uh topic i would love for someone to point us in that direction so do so please port cinema club podcast at gmail.com